Team, thank you for leading us in that sweet time of worship. Church, you can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, We just got back. Our pastors were at uh, district conference this week, which is something that we do annually, gathering with uh, the other workers and pastors from around the eastern half of Pennsylvania. So we were gathering with a group of a couple hundred uh, other folks and uh, lots of things that we were covering. I was proud of our team. You know, Aiden and Emily were helping serve on the prayer team and they were ministering to a lot of people while we were there. Uh, Dan Min, uh, I think, has the bubonic plague or something. The poor guy, we got to pray for him to get better. But he was actually helping lead the whole conference in worship and did a great job uh, with all of that. And so we were, we were proud of, of the good work that they're doing. And we're excited for the work that Jesus is doing in this region. You know, sometimes when we just kind of look right here, it's sometimes hard to see, wow, where's God moving, where's not? Listen, missionaries are being sent. New workers are being commissioned. New churches are being planted. Uh, There's good stuff that is happening in Eastern PA. God is on the move in a lot of ways. We are grateful for that and grateful to be part of a family that is bigger than just ourselves. Um, So today what we're going to do in the spirit of Church on Mission is I'd like us, before we get too far down the road of all the things that God is doing here, I want to try to keep some big picture pieces in play for us. And specifically today, we're going to be remembering and reflecting on the persecuted church. And and I hope that as a part of this series, that that will be something that will um, find itself a home in your prayer life as we go forward, because we want to be remembering that God is doing a lot of things in a lot of parts of the world. We have certain privileges uh, that we're so grateful for, certain blessings that we're so thankful for, uh, that is not true of everyone who names the name of Jesus around the world. So we're going to focus in on that a little bit today uh, and try to give you a couple practical things that we can take with us as well. Because I know if you're like me, you say like, you know, when you see a, a cause or a need, to know what can I do? We gonna have problems with this one again? Should we? Should I get rid of this? Sw- switch it out. All in favor of me switching my microphone? Raise your hand. All opposed? Raise your hand. Sorry, we gotta keep it. It's like no, I'm gonna overrule all of you. I'm gonna switch it. So that's how I that's how I run elder meetings as well. When I- you guys can vote. Dictatorial leader that I am. Uh, I'm just having some fun. So today, uh, while we're looking at Scripture together, um, I actually want to just kind of ask you to savor this. We're going to look at Matthew 5. If you have your Bibles, flip over there. Um, and, and I'd ask you to sort of savor this in a special way because this is Jesus who is the living Word of God speaking what we are now reading in the written Word of God. And this is, this is powerful. I mean, this is like what is on the Savior's heart, right, when he was teaching. And so, I don't know, there's just like sort of a special reverence and and solemnity that comes into a passage like this. Uh, So I would encourage you as I read this to to savor it, uh, to really listen, you know, with the the ears of your heart and see with the eyes of your heart um, the written word as spoken by the living word of God. Uh, What a privilege. So Matthew 5 begins this way. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
This happened in the first service, too. <laughs> I asked people to savor it, and then I couldn't get through it myself. That's okay. That's good. It's a good thing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God add blessing to his written word this morning. That's, that's good. That's good stuff, isn't it? I mean, to savor that. When I read the, the teachings of Jesus, I'm, like, I'm always struck by like, how different that sounds. If I were to like, say, hey, I've got a crowd of people, I would probably default to like, let me give you like five steps on better relationships, <laughs> you know, something like that. And, and Jesus gives us this sort of kingdom teaching that is like, it's literally just the opposite of what we tend to think and the way we tend to be. And so there's something just sort of sacred and holy and challenging and beautiful all at the same time about it. Today I want to focus on the end of the Beatitudes um, and looking at that, that specifically, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the spirit of church on mission and understanding the persecuted church and what does that mean for us who largely have not experienced persecution, but we're going to talk sort of about that. I think as a, as a long preamble, uh, I want to try to set a little bit of direction for like when we say church on mission, I realize that that's like a very simple thing. We all, we all go, sure, church on mission, we, want to be a ch we are a church, we want to be on mission, so that makes sense to us. And yet, I think there is still the need to kind of come back fairly frequently to ask the question, well, what is the church and what is the mission? Because as I talk to various Christians, I get a lot of different responses about that, partially because there's nuance involved. I mean, it's a, the, the church of Jesus is, a, is actually a very complex living uh, organism that is the people. It's not the building. It's all, we understand that kind of thing. But it's actually, it's you know, it's multicultural. It's it. There's a lot to it when we say the church, and uh, and then the mission of God. You know, well, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean to be on mission? So let's just do a little bit of review. Last week, we talked about the ever-expanding church, right? Josh Grimes was with us, if you were with us. Uh, just a great message. I love Josh. I love his heart. I love his humor. I love his leadership. Uh, and, and he brought some really wonderful things for us. We looked at this map together to look at some of the church plants that we have either been directly involved with in planting or have supported. Um, and I just, you know, I look at this, I say, this is the sort of thing that is a heartbeat issue for me. 
uh, not just specifically church planting, but they w- we would be a church that is sending and giving and going and living out in generosity and, and not so much worried about, well, what do we need right here, but looking out. You know, that's, a, that's an important element of, of the life that I think the Lord wants to share through this church. And I think he's been doing it. We've got some good history in those fronts, and, and I think we've got some great opportunities uh, as things go on. John 17, 18 was one of the key scriptures last week. As you sent me into the world, Jesus prays, so I have sent them into the world. So that literally means like when you come to church and participate in the things that are going. Really what we're trying to do is, is, is fuel your life and, and impart some things of, of God together, some things that we can establish and, and experience in community like worship and prayer and some nice things like that that would fuel you then to be on mission as you go. So you will leave here today not like, to, like okay, church is over, but like leave here today to say your mission is before you, where, where you are planted in your work and in your school and in your study and like the various things, God has purpose for you. So we're sent out into the world. That's a, that's a part of who we are. When I think about the church, you know, there's this Greek word, ekklesia, that many of us probably know. I mean, it's, it's defined as the called out ones or I like this actually, this definition, a gathering of those who are summoned, okay, the ecclesia, you know, we learn as little kids, the church isn't the building, it's the people. The church isn't the building, it's the people, right? So like the church exists where buildings do not, where structures do not, where denominations do not. The, the church exists where people who proclaim the name of Jesus are gathered together. Jesus said, when two or more are gathered in my name, I'm gonna be there in the midst of them. So the ecclesia is this, this called out group of people. The interesting thing is in the, in the Greek sort of, the, the, that Greek word had significance for the Greeks, meaning this was sort of an establishment of citizenship. This was a way that marked you as a, a citizen of this country or region or this thing. And, and that actually translates really well because Jesus says, you are the called out ones, you are the church who are actually citizens of a different kingdom. You, you, you actually are citizens of a different world. And, and when we get that, that element sort of trickles down into it. Like when, when we start living that way, a lot of the pieces that we're going to talk about in this series of being a church on mission make way more sense. It just makes incredibly much more sense when we say, yeah, I'm actually not a citizen of this world. I live here. I work here. I play here. I do things here, but I am living for another kingdom. I'm living for another world. That is part of the mystery of following Christ. So I'm, I'm going to unpack that and share several scriptures on that today. So this ecclesia, this gathering of those summoned. If you are in Christ today, and I realize that may not be everybody that's here, you may be in a church building, but you may not yet be a part of the church because you don't necessarily have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The called out ones, as many of us are, would say, yeah, I've committed my heart and my life to Jesus Christ. The cool thing about that is that means when you say yes to him and you are a part of the ecclesia, you are a part of the multinational move of God that literally covers the entire world. So it connects you with people who aren't like you. It connects you with people who don't have the same circumstances as you. It connects you with people who speak different languages and yet worship the same God. 
So several years ago, I was just writing some things down uh, on, on this question of like, well, wh- what is the church? Like if, if we really try to explain this to people, and, and so I'm, I'm going to read to you a few paragraphs uh, from that writing that I actually found to be sort of helpful and grounding to me in terms of sorting out like, what is it that defines us as a church? So let me just read to you a couple of these paragraphs. If you're not like, uh, you know, if you get bored, then just tune out and I'll be back in here in a minute. Uh, as the church, we are identified not by our race or color of our skin, but by our belief. What do we believe? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Some of you are saying, you didn't write this. This is the Apostles' Creed. I know, I'm borrowing. Okay. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We believe that he is returning to judge the quick and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. We are men and women, college students, children, teenagers. We are your little sister. We are your elderly neighbor. We are your mom, your dad, your great-grandmother. We are you. In this organization, you are never too young to be serious about Jesus and never too old to be useful for his cause. We are the most diverse organization on the planet. We are Asian, European, African, American, Australian, and believe it not, we are Antarctican too. Across the globe, we are present in the biggest cities and the smallest towns. We gather in jungles, in deserts, in basements, in living rooms, and that old brick building on the corner. We are house churches. We are mega churches. We are campus churches. We are prison churches. We are city churches. We are suburban churches. We gather publicly where we are able. We thrive in secret when we can't meet publicly, risking personal harm and persecution in many parts of the world. We are called to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves and to carry the gospel to every corner of the world. We serve God not out of compulsion, but because we have the strength of those who have been set free from sin and shame. Can anybody say amen to that this morning? Now that's kind of a golf clap amen. Can anybody say amen to that this morning? We worship God because he deserves our best. And because hearts that have been forgiven much have a lot of love. We pray because we are convinced of our need and we have a deep desire to be in step and empowered by the one who called us. We are gathered as one small part of the beautiful body of Christ, which means that right now, if you are in Christ, our lives and stories are woven together in an amazing design that touches us personally, but is bigger than any one of us. So if you'd like a simple three-minute answer on, on what is the church, that's where I would start. And when we talk about her mission, I actually think there's a little bit of a caution that is, that is worth uh, touching on here. Because what I see, especially in today's day and age, is that it's very easy to kind of attach our pet peeves and projects and then add the name of Jesus as a way of sort of authenticating that we are now 
on mission with something holy. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, the world is kind of full of that. Like, in the name of Jesus, we need to, and then you fill in the blank with something that's like really not gospel or church mission related. So we have to be a little careful. The absence of a clearly defined mission leads to false definitions. Uh, And we can create non-biblical ideas when we begin to mix the language of Christ's mission with things of the wrong kingdom. Because again, we're not people of this world. So what are we talking about? I'll give you sort of three quick examples. Uh, The mission of Christ is not to preserve a sense of religious duty. The mission of Christ is not to preserve a sense of kind of like cultural awareness or identity. The mission of Christ uh, is not to preserve kind of a, a political stance or party. All of these things are actually very important. All of these things are informed by the mission of Christ, but the mission of Christ absolutely transcends all of them. So that means like when we begin to elevate sort of my cultural identity or my political affiliation or those things, and I, I, I even just kind of hint at making that kind of the, the thing through which I'm trying to do mission. And then when I stick Jesus' name to that to be like, well, you know, Jesus would obviously, you know, vote like me or look like me or did like, then we get into a really kind of muddy place. So part of our goal is to say, if we're the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, we live for another kingdom and another world, we wanna be deeply in touch with the mission of Christ, which transcends all of these. Uh, And and let me me give you a scriptural example. Uh, In Mark chapter eight, in verse 15, um, write that down if you're taking notes. It's f- so fascinating. You've all probably heard, if you've read the Bible you know, for any number of times, you've probably heard this verse where Jesus says to his disciples, he calls them together, and he says to them, be careful. He actually uses pretty strong language, depending on the translation you look at. Be careful, be on guard, be wary. He warns them sternly against the yeast of the Pharisees. That's what he says. And then, in, specifically in Mark chapter 8, he says, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. He says both of those things. He is saying this to Christ followers. He says to his disciples. He says, so I, I think if he were to say these kind of things to people like us who name the name of Jesus, I think he would still say this. Be on guard, be wary against the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. It's like, well, that's... Sort of a, you know, what's he talking about? The yeast of the Pharisees is, is the religious spirit, right? And, and we know that Jesus reserved his harshest rebukes for the religious people of the day. Now, here's the thing that's crazy about it. The religious people, they knew scripture. They quoted scripture. I mean, they were disciplined in ways that many of us would say, that, I mean, that's, that's good discipline. And yet, his criticism was this. He says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs that look pretty on the outside, and inside you are dead. You are devoid of life, dead men's bones. That's how Jesus evaluated the religious kind of approach. So, we, so, so now he's saying to his disciples, don't become all religious in your pursuit of me because it sucks out the life, the life of the Spirit. And then he says this thing about... Um, the, the yeast of Herod, which if that was the one and the same thing, I think he would just say, just be careful. But he said that specifically as something different. Herod was not a religious person. 
He was a political figure. And the yeast of Herod was essentially saying the political spirit, which can, again, the, the danger with these things and understanding, these things want to attach themselves to the mission of Christ. And then they, it sucks out all the life, and it sucks out all the joy. So you know, folks, and, and you've been in the place where you would say, you know what, I'm putting my faith in this sort of political approach or political party. These are the good guys, these are the bad guys, or whatever. And many people that I talk to that are in that place, they are losing their joy because they're missing the actual mission of Christ. My kingdom is not of this world. The political party is all about this world. I'm not suggesting these are not important things. They're just not ultimate things. So when we say as the, as the ecclesia, the people of God who are going after the things of God and living for a kingdom that's not of this world, we have to be careful. Jesus actually gave some specific uh, uh, warnings here about the religious spirit and the, the political spirit in particular. So, mission of, of Christ. I look at things like Acts 1.8, which we quote a lot, preach a lot from. You're going to receive power. That's a good thing. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that's an imperative thing. And then you're going to be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, until the ends of the earth. So there's always a sending component. We see this. You know, as I sent, you sent me into the world and I send you out. Now you're going to receive power. Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you're going you're gonna to go. You're going to speak. And this is the places where you work and live and play and stuff. And again, it's, it's out there. You're going out into the world to be the church. So if I want to be on mission, I know I need the Holy Spirit. I know I need his empowerment. And I have to have a sentness mentality. That's a part of it. This is going to be kind of a working definition, by the way. We're going, to, we're going to develop this. We've got a lot of weeks to do this, but let's get a couple big pieces down. Uh, another very obvious place to go, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me, therefore, go, right? I mean, it's a sending component. Go, make disciples. So now this is very clear that he's saying to his disciples, the key is discipleship. You know, people who are committed in their lives to other things need to find what they were made for, which is discipleship and commitment to God through the work of Jesus Christ. So, so you, imperfect, people who haven't got it all figured out, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're going to be sent out into the world to make disciples, baptize them. That's a personal commitment where we go public. That's a naming thing, right, where we say, I am with Christ. That's what we do in baptism. We did that recently. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey the things I've commanded. And then here's a great promise. I'm going to actually be with you when you do this. You know, so, so when we think about church on mission, it's, there's a go component. There's a sending component. We're on mission. What we do here is, is beautiful and good, but it's to get us ready. This isn't the end all be all. It's to help us get ready to go and to be and to, to do the things on mission that Christ has called us to, making disciples. And every time you do that, in every generation that that is done, in every person that says, yes, I am on mission with Christ, Jesus says, I'll be with you. That's pretty awesome. That gives me a lot of hope, especially when I feel insecure in and of myself. So, some of you say, yeah, we know this, we got this. We just wanna make sure that we're clear who we are and what our mission kind of looks like. Matthew 16, Jesus says, on this rock, says to Peter, I'm gonna build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, Jesus is the one doing the building. Jesus the one who is, who is initiating, but he's calling us to be a part of his great work. 
Okay, so uh, here's a metaphor for you. Kevin DeYoung, just one last thing that we'll talk about, sort of understanding the church and, and her mission. Um, Kevin DeYoung uh, is a good writer in, in his, his book, which is What is the Mission of the Church? That's fairly on, fairly on the nose in terms of our, our topic. He says this, the church acts as a sort of embassy for the government of the king, uh, which, is, which is actually a great metaphor given the Ecclesia translation. Okay, uh, The church acts as a sort of embassy for the government of the king. It is an outpost of the kingdom of God surrounded by the kingdom of darkness. And then on the screen, we have this part of the quote for you. Just as an embassy is meant to showcase the life of a nation to the surrounding people, so the church is meant to manifest the life of the kingdom of God to the people around it. I like that. I like that metaphor. So if you've been with us the last two weeks, we've had metaphors of beehives and large ships and now embassies. So, but, but I think that's actually what we do in trying to understand something as complicated and nuanced in some ways as the church actually is. We, we try to draw on metaphors that help us understand. So that idea of an embassy and a surrounding nation is, is a good one, in my opinion. So here's where we land today. And yes, congratulations, Aaron, on possibly the longest preamble of the year. I just thought that those were important things for us to make sure that we had some, some clarity on. The mission of Christ and the ecclesia, the called out ones, will be opposed in this world by the world, by the flesh, your own flesh. In some ways, you're one of your own worst enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil will actively oppose the, the mission of Jesus and the people of Jesus, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And so we actually see all throughout Scripture in a way that is probably not intuitively normal for us. We see that this notion of persecution is actually a through line that we see all the way throughout. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Psalm chapter 9, Psalm chapter 69, Psalm 119, uh, all of the Gospels reference uh, persecution uh, the acts of the apostles going forward, the work uh, the, of the early church is, is fraught with the advances of the kingdom and the pushback of opposition, including uh, persecution. The epistles of Paul in the New Testament, in Romans, in 1 Thessalonians, the author of Hebrews, and all the way to Revelation all reference the notion of persecution. Um, so, so this is a part of us understanding the church on mission. Does that make sense? So if, if we're going to get this and we just talk about, well, here's the things that we're going to do, but we don't have an understanding that there is opposition. And in fact, specifically, I'm going to make the argument to you today, you face opposition, you face persecution. It may not look as severe as persecution in other parts of the world, but it is a part of the cost of following Christ. So if we don't understand that, I think we get you know, turned around in sideways when it, all of a sudden we face persecution, opposition, discouragement, etc. So we, we need to be aware. Um, let me give you two things, and then I'm just going to give you three statements, and that's what we'll unpack today. So I, I was speaking with some missionaries uh, that were former students of ours on campus, and I actually did a little missions moment video interview with them, and it was really rich just to hear how God has been using them. Part of their ministry has been in the uh, Greek islands, where they have in recent years done a ton of work with refugees, 
when we were doing this interview, it was the same week. It was literally the, the day that the headlines were really hitting about the pulling out of troops from Afghanistan and just the incredible uh, difficulty that was going. That week, I had been praying with pastors for the Christians in Afghanistan, many of whom said, we are staying by choice because we believe that God has called us to be here. And yes, we recognize we are probably signing our death sentence. I mean, we literally may be here for another week or two or less. And yet, in boldness, they were saying, we want to stay here. So we were praying for Afghanistan already with some pastors, some of us just weeping and, and praying for brothers and sisters. You know, God puts compassion on your heart. That's a good thing. So we were praying. Then I'm speaking to this missionary couple, and they said the refugees that we largely dealt with were from Afghanistan. And they said, Aaron, you would not believe the level of hunger in these men and women. I mean, that they, they get a page of Scripture <laughs> scripture page at a time. You've got 12 Bibles in your study, in your library, right? You know, they, they get a page of Scripture, and they want to talk about it for hours, just pouring over the Word of God. They're hungry, 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 having so little, they hunger very deeply. But powerful move of God. So talking to this missionary couple, hearing incredible stories from them about how God is working in the persecuted church. And then uh, Forbes magazine actually ran an article this year uh, that the title of the article was One in Eight Christians Worldwide Live in Countries Where They May First Face Persecution. I mean, that's a large number. That's a significant, when you think about that beautiful interwoven tapestry of the body of Christ, one in eight of us living in places where they may face sometimes even very severe persecution. On an average day, there are 13 Christians killed for their faith, 12 churches or, or Christian buildings are attacked, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested. Five Christians are abducted for faith-related reasons. Uh, and, the, and the article basically said, in the 21st century, it is still not possible to practice religion, faith, or belief safely in some parts of the world. So that's, that's a part of the world that we live in. And so when we pray for our brothers and sisters, and when we support the work that helps bring relief to them, we're actually trying to connect with the heart of God. So this is an important part of Church on Mission. Let me give you three statements I'm going to go through with you. When I think about the persecuted church, here's a couple things that, that God kind of brings to my heart to share with you today. Number one, um, it seems that persecution is normal for the Christ follower. I mean, the, the, the Beatitudes Again, it's all this sort of upside-down sort of kingdom thinking. Instead of the way, you know, that we think of power and we think of prestige and glory to glory and all that kind of stuff. And yet Jesus is saying, well, the, the actual blessing comes in places that you wouldn't think it would come. And people are going to revile you or disagree with you or even persecute you if you're serious, serious about following me. Persecution seems to be normal for the Christ follower. So... For, for you and for me, if you have been serious about following Christ, at the very least, you have probably experienced people who would say, you're not my kind of people. You know what I mean? That's a very light kind of persecution, but you will experience that level of rejection for following Christ at some point in your journey. For some people in the world, they are experiencing it to the level where it is imprisonment, it's physical harm, it's loss of life, it's loss of family members, it's loss of jobs. I mean, it's, it's a high level. And yet we see persecution is fairly normal for the Christ follower. I said, I said before, depending on how you see your place in this world, this will either make sense or not make a lot of sense. But the Bible actually describes you 
if you are a Christ follower today as an exile or a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, some of you are thinking, that kind of sounds scriptural. Uh, it's because it's it is. I mean, I'll just read a couple to you. John 17, they are not of the world, Jesus prayed, just as I am not of the world. Again, my kingdom is of another place. Uh, Acts 7, verse 6, God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. The author of Hebrews, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they gave their lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this idea that there is an identity of people who are not of this place and passing through. When we understand that, then the notion of persecution is sort of like, well, right. I mean, you're, you're running against the grain of the world in which you are planted. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So this idea that persecution would be abnormal, I think, is an adjustment we need to make on our thing. Persecution is a normal part for the Christ follower. Now, our normal is not the global normal. Okay, and just give you a little statistical thinking. Like there's 40% of the world's population lives in India and China, right? 4% of the world's population lives in the United States. And yet most of my processing, when I think about like what normal is, I just run it right through my American grid and I say, well, yeah, this is kind of, this is normal life. It, it's not. I mean, it's, I live differently than a lot of the world does. Does that make sense? So we can have this sort of view. So, so some people, different leaders that have really delved into ministering to the persecuted church. One of them is Francis Chan. Some of you guys know Francis Chan. You read his books and things like that. Great guy. Um, he talks about going to meet with, learn from uh, people who are in persecuted areas. And so he went to various places in the world. I think he was with a group of, of Chinese nationals, many of whom had, had suffered greatly, had lost, uh, lost loved ones, uh, been falsely imprisoned, that kind of thing. And he said, the joy among these people is absolutely contagious. The, the thing that, that I didn't finish saying before, it, the, the religious spirit and the, and the political spirit, you know what those do? That sucks the joy out of you. You got no joy left. But you stay on mission with Jesus even through persecution. And so this is the thing. People who have less and who suffer more and who come out on the other side more joyful than people who have more and suffer less. That's a weird kingdom economy sort of thing, but that is what Francis Chan is saying. So he said, there's all of this laughter. So he begins to talk with these people about the church in America. And he said, yeah, we're actually, it's really different there. Like, we actually have a lot of churches in almost every town. And they're laughing. They're not mocking. They're just like, that's just so, so strange to think about, right? And he said, yeah, we, we actually, most of the churches have their own buildings, and they're laughing. They go, why would they want to have their own buildings? People are going to know where to find you. And he says, no, actually, we're allowed to, to meet and, and worship and stuff. And they're just like, they were sort of blown away, but laughing and joyful, not mocking, just like, wow, that is so different, so strange. And uh, as they talked about it, you know, Francis Chan begins to tell them, like, yeah, one of the things that we struggle with in America is that when, when, People say, well, I don't like the preaching in this church, so I'll just go to a different one. Right? I don't like the worship here. It's not really my style, so I go over here. And they're laughing. They're like, that is the weirdest problems, <laughs> the strangest problems to try to get our minds around. 
So like our normal is not always the normal. So I think it's just helpful if we're going to stand with and pray for and support our persecuted brothers and sisters is important. Another example, Nick Ripkin, uh, I've used, that's a pseudonym, but he has a book called The Insanity of God, which I've quoted uh, a couple times maybe over this last year. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Uh, talking about missions and, and our part and talking about the persecuted church and talking about the blessing of God seeming to follow where the persecution is oftentimes the hardest and trying to understand that. So he's, he's grappling with that. He was also speaking with a group of, of persecuted church people. And his story was very touching in a different way in the way that Francis Chan's was actually kind of funny and made me laugh. This really touched my heart that he said, I'm speaking with this group of persecuted Christians and they asked me this question, are there other people who love Jesus in other parts of the world? And he said, oh, you have, you have no idea. There are Jesus-loving people in every country of the world. And they're blown away. They're praising the Lord. Wow, we, did, we had no idea we were part of something so, so global and so worldwide. And then he, the, 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 these national people, persecuted church people who have suffered deeply, and they said, are you telling me that there are people in the West who pray for us? And he said, absolutely, there are people in the West who pray for you. Maybe not as many as we should have, but yes, there are people who are praying. There are whole organizations that are set up to encourage prayer for you, and they're blown away. They said, we can't believe this. What a good God we have. How wonderful to know. The brothers and sisters we don't even know are praying for us. This is their reaction. Nick uh, goes to bed. The next morning he gets up. He says, I'm up before the sun, and it's, it's really, really early. And he said, I'm awakened by hearing these guys praying. They're outside. They're crying out to God, and they're thanking him. And he said, I can't, even, I can't even understand their language, but I knew what they were doing. And I asked the translator, he said, they are praying for the church in the West because they're so thankful that they have brothers and sisters that they didn't even know about. Man, that is awesome. That is God's stuff. But there's, there's a joy. There's a heart of Christ that's there. I'm still on my first statement. I gotta keep moving. <laughs> uh, longest preamble, longest first statement. Check, check. Um, I'll say this real quickly. Um, things are closer than you think. You know, we, we, persecution always feels like really far away. I, I just had the privilege, huge privilege, of welcoming into membership in this church family a family who just escaped persecution in the last year and went through an incredible God story that the Lord was able to bring them here and is now worshiping with us, a part of our family right here. Not just someone out there, people that are right here. That's awesome. Incidentally, I did ask them, I said, well, so tell me the biggest difference that you see in our church and the churches that you come from. And he did say, they did say, um, people there do take Jesus more seriously. For what it's worth, we can learn from our brothers and sisters. That's good. Um, here's the second statement. First one is persecution is normal for the Christ follower. Second one is Persecution requires us to hold care and trust in tension. And here's what I mean. If we lack compassion, we miss the heart of God, right? I mean, there's, God has a compassionate heart. And so we can't carry every burden. We can't meet every need. But we, we, we should at least start with a heart of compassion. So that care piece is important. But here's the other side. If we miss out, if we lack trust, 
we miss out on the sovereignty of God. So we need to be a people, ecclesia, church on mission, when we think about the persecuted church who, who understand the balance between care and trust. And, and I'll illustrate it this way. Um, some of you are parents. Some of you are grandparents. And you know what it is. Like, as a parent, there's this weird thing that kicks in where you would do almost anything to protect your child from pain. I mean, you would step into harm's way to help your child. It's a, it's a weird phenomenon, but it happens with almost every parent that I've talked to. You know, we have a desire to protect our children from pain. And it runs deep. But then there's this other thing where we realize we can't protect our child from all pain. We can't. That's not life. They're going to experience pain. And we actually learn over time that sometimes it's the painful experiences that they go through that form them and shape them the most. Has anybody experienced that? Raise a hand. Yeah. That's a weird tension. Because we don't then just go, oh, good, well, just open up the door and let's hurt them. <laughs> you know? But we don't do that. But we recognize that there's a tension. So a heart of compassion that says, yeah, I want to look for ways to be active, especially in standing with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I, I met a, a leader at the conference we just came from, um, a young, little younger than me, uh, from the Hmong culture, right? So he, he uh, was a refugee, and he said, churches, don't miss out on what God is doing through refugee ministry. He said, literally, our family, we were displaced people. And we were brought to the United States, and we were, we were placed and housed and cared for by a Lutheran ministry. We were not people of faith, but because of that action, we were able to be introduced to Jesus Christ. He said, I was a kid at the time, but my dad became a Christ follower. He was the first person in our family line ever uh, to receive Jesus Christ. Now, this young man has received Christ, and he's, he's planted 200, 300 churches uh, in the United States. So he's doing incredible kingdom work, but that started with a, a care ministry, you know, that God was, was using. So trust God's sovereignty and have God's heart of care. It's important. Um, I, I feel like this is important to say, so I, I don't want to take too much time, but I just, I, I really want to make sure I'm, I articulate this. Some people haven't been offended yet, so <laughs> give me three minutes. Um, one of the challenges that I think we are experiencing in the church kind of in settings like ours is that we want, I think we really want to be on mission. Like, we want to be a church on mission. I don't talk to any Christians who are like, eh, I don't really care about the mission of Christ. Most people really do. But we don't necessarily know where to draw the lines. So what we end up having happen, and I think this has happened a lot in the last year and a half, two years especially, with all the stuff with the pandemic or whatever, we end up drawing sort of gospel lines in non-gospel places. And then we try to exercise gospel boldness over non-gospel things. D does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? Or at least you know somebody that that makes sense for, right? So then we, we sort of go to war over something that is actually just political spirit stuff. Or we go to war over something that's just sort of cultural preference stuff. Or we go to war over something that, it, you see what I'm saying, that, that, is, that is religious kind of observance stuff, trying to preserve something that's actually not gospel stuff. Right? So, like, I can make a, a case for why you should wear a mask or shouldn't wear a mask or should get a vaccine or shouldn't get a vaccine. But then when I attach, like, gospel boldness to that, it really kind of makes a mess of things. We don't quite know where to draw our, our red lines, if that makes sense. So I had a, converse, a lovely conversation with a, a brother from this church 
We have, we have different views on some of those very things I just talked about. We have different views, but both of us are in agreement. That is not the primary thing. And that does not keep us from being brothers in Christ or on mission with Christ. Does that make sense? So, so the scriptural example is like Acts 4, where the disciples are brought in and they're persecuted for their faith. They're preaching the name of Jesus and they're punished for it. And they're told that you're not going to do this anymore. They're beaten. It's interesting how the disciples, it says when they, when they were uh, beaten for their faith, they found it they found joy in knowing that they were worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. So again, there's that joy piece again. That's a good litmus test uh, to keep your eye on. So the joy is there. And th- but then they had the red line because the, the authorities said, okay, go, we're done with this business now, and don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And what was their response? Right, we're going to obey God, not men. I mean, they understood that was kind of the place. And so we could get to the place where as a church family, the powers that be, the infamous, ubiquitous they, say, you are not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. At which point, the red line is, we're gonna obey God rather than men. We'll take a hard line on things like that. Because that's what we're called to. And we might suffer for it. A lot of our brothers and sisters do. Does that resonate with your heart today? So it kind of maybe let off a little of the steam, or maybe some of you are like, well, now I'm really ticked at you. <laughs> Can't talk about those things. Okay. Um, Acts 4, good stuff. Last, last one, I'll do this one quickly. Uh, the third point is this. Our actions should reflect the heart of Christ. So when we think about in on November, I think it's November 7th, is actually the Remember the Persecuted Church Sunday coming up. Um, so we're a couple weeks away from that. And, and maybe it would be great between now and then for you to think about a couple of things. How could my actions reflect the heart of Christ? Hebrews 13.3 says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. Those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. This is this compassionate heart interwoven ecclesia. Um, what, I, what I get frustrated with at times is like, I just, I, I want to know what to do. You know, this especially feels like one like... I, the majority of the persecuted church are way outside of my ability to encourage or whatever. So one, like we can make praying for the persecuted church an actual thing that we do. In our community groups, we, we remember, I mean, there's great resources, Open Door, Voice of the Martyrs, different things like that to say, help us know how to pray uh, for the persecuted church. We did that today believing that God is, is not bound by geography like we are. I mean, he literally is behind enemy lines and, uh, and working and moving and honoring your prayer. So, so praying is not just a, it's not just a, if you've got nothing better to do. Uh, it's, it's a good place in us showing actions that reflect the heart of Christ. Uh, here's one that I think is just practical. Um, gratitude, which we also express today in thanking the Lord for our blessings, I think gratitude is such an important reminder to say in light of all that we have been given, in light of all we have, blessings upon blessings upon blessings, I am just not going to complain about the thing. You know, by God's grace, I'm going to choose as an act of my will to say I'm not going to complain about secondary and tertiary and quadruciary. I don't know what the word is. You guys probably know. You could probably help me with that. But... um, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to, I'm not going to invest my joy or, or sacrifice my joy in those things. 
uh, gratitude is, is important. So that, I think that's something that reflects the heart of Christ. Um, being stirred to action and saying, you know, to, to, to advocate, to speak on behalf of those who are mistreated. To, like, th- these are good things. Um, to give. You know, so, so we actually have a practical thing. Last year, we supported as a church the College of Prayer in their ministry specifically to help the persecuted church. So a lot of you, get, I mean, thousands of dollars came in from you guys to say, hey, that's a practical thing that we can do. That ministry is doing a great job. They're behind enemy lines. They're kind of doing secret meetings to train underground and persecuted church leaders and uh, we have an opportunity, our elder board just approved a $3,000 gift to say we want to we give to support the training of those leaders. And we're going to open that up between now and the 7th of November if, if God puts that on your heart to say, hey, that's a, that's a tangible thing that I could do. If I can give $100, I give $100. If I give $10 or 5 just we'll put all of that money toward College of Prayer. We'll forward that to them. And you can do it through any of your normal giving channels. Uh, just mark persecuted church as your, as your designation. Um, so, you know, just looking for ways to be practical and to reflect the heart of God. So I'm going to pray for us. We are going to have one last song of worship, and the team can come up and uh, get ready to lead us. And I think that this, um, maybe in a similar way that, you know, reading a scripture that is the, the heart of Jesus um, maybe this song would e- even allow us to experience the heart of Jesus. Um, and as we sing, um, maybe this isn't a big, hey, everybody sing out as loud as you can. Maybe this is a be quiet and, and, and pray and see what the Lord might have for you to do or to simply intercede for those who are in need. Okay, so let's stand together. Jesus, thank you for loving us. We are grateful for your blessings. We are thankful for the church. We're thankful, Lord, that... You are patient with us when we don't really fully understand what uh, blessings are even all about. You know, we, we would write a very different list probably in a lot of ways than Jesus would. But you're, you're refining us and you're helping us to, to think like kingdom people and to live like kingdom people. So in all the ways that we need that help, we just invite that. Help us, Holy Spirit. Uh, and as we sing and as we pray uh, in this time, we do remember those who right now may be suffering, right now may be thanking the Lord for brothers and sisters that they don't know. Uh, And in a special way, Lord, we would thank you for their lives. Thank you for their witness. May they be strong. Jesus, would you just infuse your presence over people that need you today? Thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, I I was so sort of moved by this, but like the... A group was asked, how, how, how can the church, how can the church in the West, how can we pray for you? And they said, pray that we suffer well for the cause of Christ. Pray that we stand up well. Pray that we, we, we witness, uh, show a witness of Christ. Pray for those who are uh, persecuting us that they would come to know Christ. We pray for our enemies. So they're saying all this stuff. And what they never said was pray that our suffering would stop, which was where I would start they have a kingdom priority. So Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters and even as we reflect over this last song, um, focus our hearts on you. I think it's an important part of us, Lord, moving forward as a church on mission. So we don't want to miss what you have for us here. In your name, amen.